Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Andy will be answering questions submitted by you in no particular order. Our first question this week is in regards to Bitcoin, as asked by Howard and John. There have been a number of questions about Bitcoin and then what's called decentralized finance and decentralized apps separately. What I thought I'd try and do is summarize my general thoughts as concisely as I can. And if that doesn't answer people's specific questions as to my opinion, um, everybody should feel free to follow up. The first thing I would ask is what is the problem that Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are the solution to? What are they trying to solve? What need are they trying to fill? And I think the first way to start thinking about this is to think about the status quo ante. I begin with the observation that pre-Bitcoin, there are essentially three separate currency systems within the developed world, the United States. You know, first, there are Federal Reserve notes, their actual currency, the five tens and $20 bills in your pocket. These are used for small transactions and illegal transactions, or at least sketchy transactions, transactions that one doesn't want recorded or traced or open. The second is credit slash debit cards, which are used for medium-sized transactions, anything, retail purchases, etc. And lastly, there's the wire transfer system, including checks, which are used for large transactions. First thing to note is that while they're all U.S. dollar denominated and they're all sort of legal forms of payment, they're not fully fungible or interchangeable. Now maybe you can, but at least a few years ago, you couldn't tip the valet with a credit card. You can't buy illegal drugs with a credit card. You can't even where they're legal. I don't think you can buy marijuana with a credit card, but you get the point. Similarly, more and more, even medium-sized transactions, you can't use cash. More businesses are going cashless, and certainly you can't show up at a car dealer with $40,000 in $100 bills and buy a car. The car dealer will take your Visa or MasterCard for the $1,200 repair, but probably won't take it, or certainly will not want to pay the fees associated with a credit card if you were buying the whole cart. Similarly, something like a house or a thousand shares of Microsoft stock that's going to be done with a wire or sort of the equivalent, a certified check. What's interesting to me is that the credit card system, which has the Visa MasterCard duopoly, is really, really expensive for merchants. You know, credit card fees being in the two and a half percent range. And when you think about what the profit margin is on most things, that the payment system is absorbing that amount for every transaction is bizarre. One would think it ought to, in fact, be easy and essentially free to transact, to pay for things. And in some sense, it would seem that that cash is free, though on smallish transactions, merchants actually tend to prefer a credit card even with its 2.5% fee to handling cash. It turns out that handling cash is expensive. Now, 
The one sort of problem that Bitcoin and the other cryptos have never been sold as the answer to the Visa MasterCard monopoly. And in fact, within the traditional banking system, within the traditional currency system, one can see payments being instantaneous, secure, and essentially free. And to some degree, that's starting to happen uh, with things like Zelle and Venmo. Automatic monthly payments in general are free, and that would seem to be workable within the traditional currency payment scheme structure. The second kind of idea of money and currency is as a unit of account and store of value. And one frequently hears this as sort of the appeal of crypto, something not subject to the whims of government and the systematic debasement by monetary authorities, sort of a distrust of government in terms of maintaining the value of the currency. Here again, the cryptos don't really address or answer the problem in a couple of ways. First, even with great monetary expansion, currency has held up quite well. We're actually in a period of very moderate inflation, currency debasement, and more or less everybody expects it to last for at least the intermediate term. So that while Bitcoin and to some degree gold too are sort of sold, that dollars are going to be worthless, you need something else. I don't think that's really what the creation of cryptocurrency is about. And to the extent that crypto becomes part of a broader financial system, you know, assuming that one can borrow at interest, which is pretty basic, and the proponents of crypto would hope and expect that develops, then at least in the intermediate term, there's credit creation and credit destruction is not strictly tied to whatever the reserve is. So that if there's a credit system around Bitcoin, one should expect inflation and deflation to occur fairly regularly as credit is privately created and destroyed. So the real use of crypto, the problem that crypto does actually solve quite well is for larger illegal or at least disguised transactions. Now, crypto is actually more transparent than cash, but it can be transferred at a distance and it can be transferred at a size that cash can't. So it works really, really well for the second use of currency, which is illegal or at least transactions that somebody wants to conceal from somebody. Is that enough to sustain it? Maybe. You know, to the extent that more and more transactions in more and more places of the world need to or people want to keep off the grid, that could be sustainable. But I think there's a very, very narrow range of the world in which that works, in that I think it's impossible to disassociate a financial system and commerce from contract and the enforcement thereof. 
So to the extent that one wants governments to have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force and coercion, and to the extent that one wants one's contracts enforced by a state and not private armed forces, government-issued currency really does work better. There is kind of this interesting dynamic that to the extent governments in the developed world would try to really crack down and eliminate cryptocurrencies, the greater the anti-government separatist appeal becomes. One can sort of see that the more the government wants to eliminate it, the more valuable it is perceived to have something that is, at least on the surface, out of the reach of government. Our next question comes from Jason. Decentralized finance protocols have exploded in popularity this year. While the space is still incredibly small relative to the traditional banking system, do you think DeFi could grow into something that could eventually challenge aspects of traditional banking? Uh, I didn't know what DeFi was, but the uh, questioner was nice enough to provide a link, and I will read from DeFiPulse.com. It says, what is DeFi? DeFi is an abbreviation of the phrase decentralized finance, which generally refers to digital assets and financial smart contracts, protocols, and decentralized applications, abbreviated DApps, most of which are built on Ethereum. In simpler terms, it's financial software built on the blockchain that can be pieced together like money Legos. Most, if not all, of traditional finance and professional services in general on a theoretic level could be replaced by software, both and protocols. Clearly, already much of stock trading is algorithmically driven. There are two sort of separate questions then. First, which financial services are going to be replaced with software? Second, will they be settled with digital assets and without a trusted intermediary? And again, I would hearken back to my earlier comments on Bitcoin, which is to say that the problem that digital currencies address is in the same way that actual physical currency also addresses is the accomplishment of illegal transactions, which includes, of course, tax evasion. So activities that are otherwise legal but are being settled in Federal Reserve notes outside of the banking system, most often because the receiving party would owe tax and doesn't want to pay it. Who among us has not paid a contractor in Federal Reserve notes knowing quite well that that was probably what was going on. I think it's you know, actually not a coincidence that the digital currency phenomenon is post the Patriot Act, post a government crackdown on the use of physical currency as part of the government's war on drugs and war on terrorism. And I think the number of cash transactions, paying the landscaper or or, uh, the cleaning help in cash, that's become less common. And I think for governments to clearly criminalize questionable transactions settled in digital assets is relatively easy. And 
Bahrain. So the question is, can the facilitation of criminal activity get enough of a foothold, have enough of non-criminal participants around it that it becomes entrenched, settled practice and hard for governments to crack down on? Again, you know, my suspicion is no. Therefore, at the end of the day, digital currency and things built around it are not going to become a meaningful part of the financial landscape. Again, harking back to my previous comments on Bitcoin, I think the business that is really threatened is the transaction processing kind of business. The Visa, MasterCard, Duopoly, and the credit card processors. I think over time that gets replaced with mechanisms that are essentially free, but without replacing the government-issued currencies. In terms of what applications get automated, what personal professional services get replaced, again, you know, it's sort of interesting. They will tend to be smaller, frequently repeated transactions. So, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, over the last 40 years, stockbrokers, commission trading of stocks has essentially gone away, though stockbrokers are now financial advisors, but there are actually fewer of them, and that sales commission model has gone away, while realtors have been incredibly persistent in terms of lasting. One would think that, and there's all sorts of work in terms of the value add that realtors do or do not perform, and now there have been moves to displace disrupt that process and that market with technology, none of which have made particular inroads. And I think, you know, again, it's a matter that housing transactions are relatively rare on an individual basis. You will buy and sell a house maybe three times, four times, five times in the course of your life, as opposed to stock trades, which uh, some people do more or less every day. If we extrapolate from that and you think about financial services. Of course, in theory, IPOs don't need an underwriter and all the things that an underwriter does, even including screening and due diligence and so forth, could be done on a direct basis. And one would think that scales, I think that's likely to take an extremely long time. Again, in the real estate analysis, companies go public once or maybe a handful of times in the course of their corporate existence. On the commercial banking side, companies are basically financed in discrete terms and a limited number of times over the course of their corporate life. So businesses will take out loans and pay them back, but the frequency is closer to buying and selling a house than trading stocks. So again, while that in theory could be replaced by automated algorithms, I don't see that happening in the immediate future. Now, I think generically, the trusted intermediary, as it were, I think has support from our evolutionary makeup and therefore, you know, sort of harder to displace than a purely economic model might suggest. The following questions come from Judd and John. 
There are a couple of questions on interest rates, Fed policies, and inflation risk, which I've to some degree spoken about in the previous two podcasts, but let me amplify and comment a little more. Well, I certainly believe that interest rates, particularly real interest rates, will be low for an extended period of time, as the Fed has sort of signaled. I don't think that will be the cause or represents the risk factor in terms of consumer price inflation. The great and honorable Milton Friedman, a hero to us all, said that um, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. I think that the last 20 years sort of demonstrate that to not be the case, at least as consumer price inflation. Over the last 20 plus years, I think what we've seen is that monetary policy really most directly and principally affects asset prices. And to the extent that asset prices are included in the definition of inflation, as I think represents a better understanding, then I think it's quite true. And one might say the level of asset prices is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. So that the risk of excessively easy monetary policy, permanently low interest rates, are asset bubbles, the misallocation of capital, and disruption when the prospective asset bubbles pop. It hasn't been demonstrated to particularly move consumer price inflation. I said earlier that I thought, given that the stimulus was going more directly to people with a higher propensity to consume, the latest round of stimulus would be more inflationary than previous monetary easings. A little bit surprisingly, it turned out, I guess, that when you give $1,200 stimulus checks to a broad swath of consumers, they don't buy more television sets or clothes or whatever. They buy Zoom stock or Wayfair stock. So even at that level, the spigot and transmission mechanism seems to be through asset prices. And yet earlier, I've said and I've often repeated, I do expect material consumer price inflation starting more or less now and for consumer price inflation for 2021 to be higher than any of the consensus mainstream economists are saying or consensus figures report. I think now one might say that consumer price inflation is primarily a supply side phenomenon which is to say it's changes in the supply function, disruption in supply functions, et cetera, that will drive consumer price inflation and not monetary policy. So in the past handful of decades, it's really been improvements in supply and and sort of what you might call positive supply side shocks that have resulted in tame consumer price inflation. And one even had the most recent cycle, easy monetary policy certainly facilitated the fracking revolution, positive supply shock in energy. It's facilitated the massive investment boom in China, further sort of supply shock. Meanwhile, globalization and improvements in global supply chains, a further positive development in supply over the last 20 years. To me, that all seems to be ending. I think at the end of the day, the most lasting effect of the pandemic 
combined with populist nationalism means a retreat from global supply chains, a retreat from expansion of global trade. And in the future, I see sort of an increase in negative supply shocks being the driver of consumer price inflation. I think, though it's speculative, for advanced industrial economies, it does really appear that monetary policy is disconnected to consumer prices directly to the real economy, but has a tremendous effect on asset prices and is supportive of economic activity minimally through the wealth effect. I want to spend some time today talking about the Greenspan put and the evolution of monetary policy from the end of the Volcker reign to Greenspan to today. I think central bank monetary policy, the relationship between monetary policy and fiscal policy as they're becoming more tightly wound, is certainly very central to my thinking. And I think perhaps the single most important thing to think about in constructing a worldview and investment approach. In preparation for this monologue, I googled Greenspan put and pulled up the Wikipedia definition, which was interesting. It said references to the Greenspan put. The Greenspan put was a strategy involving buying stocks and buying put option against it. The idea being that the Fed would rescue financial markets in any crisis. Any noticeable, painful sort of downswing in the markets would be met with monetary easing, which would work. Then this made stocks an attractive asset, but also in the Wikipedia definition, encouraged a high degree of volatility and that therefore owning a put against the stock position was a good idea. And presumably one would sell the put at some point in one of the declines, knowing that the Fed rescue was coming and the long asset purchase would do well. This is not my recollection or my notion of what I would have thought people meant by the Greenspan put. In some ways, it's opposite. To me, the Greenspan put was simply the notion that the Fed would rescue the markets in the event of any dramatic decline, whether financially driven or other world driven. And to some degree, this is the opposite view of their definition, because to me, the strategy would have been you could sell out of the money stock puts um, because you, in effect, own the put that Greenspan was giving you. Now, I'm pretty sure that the Wikipedia entry is revisionist history. In the 90s and early 2000s, if you said the Greenspan put, it was not that one should buy stocks and buy put, but simply that one should buy stocks or that one should sell puts. I offer and support my argument that Wikipedia is revisionist history and my memory is correct. The Bob Woodward book, The Maestro, published in August of 2000, which is subtitled something about the boom in America. So published in August of 2000, so obviously written at the very end of the tech boom, published as the tech bubble was bursting, but still sort of chronicling the success. This was a highly, highly favorable biography of Greenspan. And the essential notion was that by adjusting from time to time, almost always in quarter point increments, but implied sometimes even less. Alan Greenspan 
the maestro could ensure continuous prosperity. Now, interestingly, my view, Greenspan was appointed as Fed chair, uh, succeeding Paul Volcker in the middle of 1987. At the time, he'd had a very undistinguished career in the private sector as a consultant, was something I think the general view would have been as a Republican Party operative with a fondness for obscure kind of statistics and verbal mannerisms and tone of which, by which, through which, nobody could ever really listen to him for any period of time. He was certainly kind of a mainstream Republican with a libertarian free market kind of bent. At that time, Time, sort of the end of the Volcker era. The notion, I think, widely, widely accepted was that uh, the Fed had limited control of long-term rates and that Volcker, in response to the stagflation of the 70s, which the mainstream economic profession really didn't have a prescription for, Volcker, in the early 80s, adopted the Friedman program of tight control of the money supply and abandoning manipulation of interest rates. So the Volcker's doctrine was he was going to control the money supply come sort of hell or high water, let interest rates do what they might do. That would tame inflation and eventually allow for economic growth. Volcker, according to sort of subsequent memoirs and discussions, didn't have a whole lot of confidence that this would work, but sort of thought desperate times called for desperate measures. This hadn't been tried. What had been tried wasn't working. So that was the policy. And it was clearly having success by the time Greenspan was appointed. I think the notion of particularly a central banker appointed by a Republican administration was to, quote, William Mackenzie Martin, the long-serving Fed governor. The idea of the Fed was to take away the punch bowl right as the party started getting good. Uh, the principal job of the Fed was price stability, though in 78, I want to say Congress had given the Fed a dual mandate to pursue a tripart mandate, moderate interest rates, stable prices, full employment. But the Republican idea was to emphasize stable prices, and that was what Greenspan was expected to do. At that point and throughout the Volcker era, and I believe throughout the 70s, the Fed had three principal tools. It had buying and selling T-bills to inject reserves and manipulate the funds rate through the injecting or depleting reserves. It had the changing setting or changing reserve requirements, which has the effect of injecting or draining reserves. And lastly, it had the discount window, direct loans to member banks, which had a published rate. At the time, till sometime in the 90s, the discount rate in reserve requirements were set by public announcement and directly enforceable. Injecting or depleting reserves was not announced, nor were there explicitly publicly announced Fed fund targets. Now, shortly after Greenspan was nominated came the 87 crash, in response to which the Fed did lower interest rates, I don't believe with an announcement. It is also widely rumored 
but never confirmed that the Fed lent money directly to Kidder Peabody to meet a margin call at the options clearinghouse. I suspect that Kidder, in fact, had a margin call, which was met, but I suspect it was done through an intermediating uh, commercial bank. If, in fact, the Fed lent directly to Kidder Peabody, it was sort of felt that that had to be kept secret. I, along with more or less everybody else, believed that the 87 crash would cause or was kind of the announcement that the economy would very shortly be in recession, either caused or at least exacerbated by the market crash. This didn't happen, and I think this was the start of the idea of the effectiveness and the power of monetary intervention. In 89, the collapse of a leverage buyout of United Airlines triggered a mini stock market crash. Again, the Fed lowered interest rates, I think possibly announced. My recollection is is in this event, it was announced. Interest rates went from something in the high eights. There was a three-quarter point, fairly rapid decline in in short-term rates, which continued throughout 1990 lowering rates from sort of eight to four. But nonetheless, late spring, summer, second half of 1990, there was a shallow and short recession. I think the shallowness and the shortness of the recession, again, contributed to the notion of the efficacy of monetary interventions. The decade of the 90s turned out to be economically extremely remarkable. Post the very shallow and short 1990 recession, there were no recessions for the rest of the decade. There were no bear markets, and inflation was steady throughout the period, pretty consistently with a two-handle or a low three-handle. In the 90s, not directly related to the Fed, but there was in December of 94, what was came to be known as the peso crisis. Mexico suddenly devalued the peso by something like 50%. They were in peril of defaulting on their dollar-denominated that the Treasury Department under Robert Rubin engineered, I believe it was a $50 billion called bailout, but loan guarantees for Mexico in the realm of $50 billion, um, roughly half provided by the United States. Interestingly, at some point, Treasury sought, it's my recollection, congressional approval, but upon getting pushback, did an end run around Congress and used Treasury Department Currency Stabilization Fund to provide that relief. While the Fed wasn't involved, and in contrast to what one might have thought from a Randian, libertarian, hard money kind of guy, Greenspan was an active supporter of this move. And while the peso continued to decline in Mexico, had a difficult time for a number of years. U.S. exports to Mexico didn't collapse. There wasn't violence on the southern border. And as far as I know, not a huge uptick in illegal immigration. The operation turned out to be profitable for the 
treasury and I think is generally regarded as a success. Rubin and, and the Treasury Department got lots of praise at the end of the day. But the next sort of crisis intervention was triggered by the Russian default beginning of 98, cascading, ultimately leading to the collapse of long-term capital. A severe drying up of credit markets in the U.S., a dramatic kind of stock decline, met with an announced three-quarter point decline in the Fed funds rate and Fed arm twisting of the major Wall Street banks to lend to long-term capital. Now, Bear Stearns, as it happened, was the one bank that opted out of providing credit to long-term capital. So at least at some level, the loans from Wall Street banks to long-term capital were voluntary and self-interested. The three-quarter point announced decline in interest rates worked more or less instantaneously. Within sort of a couple of weeks, markets rebounded, credit markets reopened, the crisis was over. I think by this point, uh, the discount window tool, the reserve requirement tool, had been retired and it was announced changes in the Fed funds target and injections of liquidity that were the toolbox. And this was probably very high point of Greenspan's reputation. And the idea that continuous modulations of the Fed funds rate punctuated by surprise or dramatic decreases couldn't would arrest any financial declines. Following the intervention in the long-term capital crisis, the markets boomed and in particular the internet bubble entered full swing. This was almost certainly exacerbated by further injections of liquidity in advance of year of the calendar issue Y2K. The three zeros in the year would trip up all sorts of computer systems, which you know, actually didn't happen, probably because it wasn't going to happen and not because of preparation. In any event, we had an internet bubble followed in the spring and throughout the end of 2000 with the cracking of the internet bubble, sometimes referred to as the tech wreck. And again, Fed easing after brief Fed tightening to try and sop up the liquidity that had been injected in anticipation of the potential Y2K problem. And again, another brief and very shallow recession. The tech bubble, certainly as it burst or after it burst, was widely commented upon and referred to as a bubble, which brings another aspect of what I might call the Greenspan Doctrine. Greenspan, now his reputation, not at the height that it was in 99, but the notion began to circulate that both an excess faith in the Fed, the Greenspan put, as it were, and potentially a bias towards easy money policies encouraged an excess of speculation which created bubbles, the bursting of which caused economic 
campaign and recession. Greenspan's defense or response was essentially one that you couldn't tell something was a bubble until after the fact, that that was just impossible and nobody should be second-guessing the markets in real time. And two, it was cheaper, better, more efficient, effective, etc., to clean up the damage of a burst bubble than to try to prevent it from inflating in the first place. Again, kind of a piece of what I would view as the Greenspan put, that if there are bubbles, yes, it's damaging to have a bubble and have it burst, but it can be cleaned up with monetary intervention relatively smoothly, cheaply, and efficiently. As the housing bubble developed in the aughts and started getting commentary from uh, mainstream economists as a potential source of concern, Greenspan was replaced by Bernanke, I want to say 2006. And here's where the notion that the Greenspan put investment strategy involved buying puts as opposed to selling them because of the increased likelihood of volatility. I think that notion sort of became cemented after the financial crisis of 08, which was obviously seen as a very costly, very dramatic, very painful consequence of the existence of a housing bubble and the bursting of that bubble. Ben Bernanke is named to the Fed Board of Governors in 2002. Comes from Princeton, a career as an academic economist. I believe no private sector experience, but in any event, an academic, a scholar of the Great Depression. It's 2002, so we've experienced long-term capital and that threat to the financial system, that collapse in liquidity, rate response, and engineered private lending working. We've experienced the tech boom and tech wreck, and we've experienced 9-11. The Fed funds rate is sitting in the vicinity of 1%. Bernanke, like everybody else, believes in the zero interest rate bond that interest rates can't be lowered below zero, that everybody believed that, and that is a separate discussion. But seeing the zero rate bound and being a student of the Great Depression, seeing deflation as the ultimate economic menace, Bernanke obviously has to look to other tools beyond reductions in the Fed funds rate as the instrumentality of monetary policy, as otherwise it looks like monetary policy could in fact be impotent in the face of any economic disruptions. In November of 2002, Bernanke gives the famous helicopter speech, essentially telegraphing quantitative easing QE as perhaps the primary central bank tools. QE should be understood as asset purchases. Sometime in the early 1990s, I I don't recall whether it was as a candidate or early in his presidency, Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over. And I think from the helicopter speech 
in 2002, we can accurately say that the era of modest, limited monetary policy, small monetary policy, is over. And parenthetically, the era in the U.S. from 1951 to the famous accord between William Mackenzie Martin and the Treasury Department reestablishing the independence of the Fed. But with um, the end of modest monetary policy comes the end of Fed independence from Treasury. Fast forward to 2008 and the financial crisis. There are um, four things that I want to highlight a little bit and discuss a little bit. First, the rescue of Bear Stearns, the engineered deal with J.P. Morgan, the failure to rescue Lehman Brothers, TARP, Troubled Acid Relief Program, and finally Dodd-Frank. The first point of the rescue of the uh, Fed-facilitated J.P. Morgan purchase of Bear Stearns It was accomplished with the creation of something called Maiden Lane, which in form had a $29 billion loan from the Fed, but in substance was entirely equivalent to the Fed purchasing of $30 billion of assets. Kind of a precursor to quantitative easing to come. Now, the Fed, and I believe Bernanke, argued that they were authorized to do this by wording in the Fed Act that authorizes the Fed to lend to individuals, corporations, etc., in extent circumstances. And while it was done, it's kind of clear that Bernanke was concerned about exceeding his authority, both from the wording of the statute and whether the statute authorized it. It was clear the statute did not contemplate this type of transaction being in any way a routine operation, and he was concerned about exceeding his authority. The hope, obviously, was that this transaction might limit contagion, stop the sale or pressure on mortgage-backed assets, etc. The point about the failure to rescue Lehman, in retrospect, among policymakers, it's almost universally regarded as a mistake. And certainly, I think Bernanke would have liked to have engineered a Maiden Lane, Bear Stearns, J.P. Morgan type deal. But again, he believed that exceeded his authority. The response to that in the immediate aftermath, the idea was TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program. And I want to emphasize the asset portion of it. Essentially, Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Paulson go to Congress and tell them you have to authorize the Treasury to purchase assets. Of course, This happens, but it happens with resistance and trepidation. Congress at first rejects the proposal. The market tanks as that's happening. They fear whatever. Congress does pass this. It's interesting. In some ways, this harkens back to the peso crisis of 94, but even bigger in scale. And one doesn't think that Paulson believed that he could do this in circumvention of the will of Congress and do it directly from Treasury. I think it's important to note that TARP never had a broad, broad public mandate or support. At best, a majority of people thought 
it was necessary, but there was a great deal of resentment of, quote, bailing out Wall Street. The legislative upshot is the Dodd-Frank Act, which I think is very, very interesting in that more or less everybody acknowledges and believes that too-big-to-fail institutions are a problem and that the failure of Lehman in conjunction with its sloppy liquidation created great problems and residual effects and hurt the broad economy considerably and for an extended period of time. But I think when one looks at Dodd-Frank and when one thinks about it, what is absolutely crystal clear is that the focus is not on the too big, but on the to fail. In other words, Dodd-Frank actually made every big financial institution bigger, sort of accepted the practical or the historic necessity of these very big financial institutions and focused on the fail portion. It, it said essentially to the Fed and I guess also to Treasury, we're going to have huge financial institutions, but you, the Fed, the Treasury, cannot ever come to Congress and say, you need to appropriate a trillion dollars or more, something with a T, so that we can rescue a J.P. Morgan, a Goldman Sachs, even the financial system writ large. So what does failing mean? Well, insolvency definitionally is liabilities exceeding assets. So in conjunction with maybe some enhanced regulatory supervision, the program is that A, you need to support the assets that these financial institutions own. You need a path for sort of buying them if their value starts to fall and threatens the solvency of major financial institutions. And two, on the liability side, uh, Dodd-Frank explicitly sort of says you don't need to honor strict priority if there are liabilities that one can just eliminate without too much muss or fuss or organized resistance, spillover effects in the economy, you can do that too. Dodd-Frank is in fact a program for asset purchase support, mandates it really, and liability elimination for disorganized, dispersed, politically disadvantaged creditors. I believe among the policy-making and implementing infrastructure of central banks and treasury departments around the world, there is pretty much universal recognition and support for the policy of pursuing financial stability through asset support and, when necessary or possible, the orderly liquidation of liabilities, which is to say the elimination of liabilities that one can eliminate without political repercussions. I also think among policymakers, there is recognition that in one form or another, this policy does not command public support. Among the public, and even outside of the public, but outside of the technocratic financial policymaking community, this situation, this policy, has no enthusiastic support and, in fact, is opposed by a majority of the populace. So the 
upshot of the response to the financial crisis is a very broad rise in populism. One has, on the one hand, the populism on the left, embodied by, in the U.S., uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who would talk, you know, very directly about breaking up the big banks, about not supporting major banks. On the right, the unpopularity is more diffuse and less defined, but broadly speaking, under the rubric that, quote, the system is rigged. And on the right, the rhetoric is not the big banks, but rather the globalists, or sometimes, regrettably, the globalists is a euphemism for the Jews. I think that technocrats understand the policy, but also understand and are very sensitive to the lack of popular support has sort of implications that we see in um, the response to COVID and the likely direction and implementation of the policy. First and foremost, in contrast to the response to the financial crisis and TARP, a very conscious effort, I think, has been made and will continue to be made to make asset support and asset purchases at the very least appear to be more directly distributed to the people. In this regard, the PPP program, not part of the Fed, part of the SPA under, I believe, Treasury, would be Exhibit A. But having said that, slightly behind the surface, should the economy not recover, the resentment of the wealthy beneficiaries of the PPP program and that a lot of the money did in fact go to financiers and business owners more broadly, that potential resentment and backlash is right there. I think there is, in fact, a political imperative that the program of asset support and liability elimination has to appear to be very broad-based and not sort of directed to a limited privileged crew. So if one thinks about things such as the insolvent status of many public pension plan programs. It's politically not viable to have a specific rescue of a specific plan in a specific municipality. It's also politically extraordinarily problematic to eliminate benefits. You know, that's the elimination of liabilities. You know, if you talk about broad-based pension benefits, one can't just write them off without great political feedback. So what could one do? Well, one could envision the Fed having a program of zero interest or close to zero interest, very long-dated loans available to a very broad base of public pension plans. One could also envision the Fed or a Fed-supported entity purchasing assets from otherwise insolvent pension plans at a price that renders them solvent, though it cannot be a specific plan in a specific locality. It has to be extraordinarily broad-based. 
if one thinks about something like the insolvency of a very large public pension plan, one can start to see how the Fed and monetary policy becomes inextricably tied and connected to fiscal policy. Obviously, the insolvency of a sufficiently large plan could call into question the whole asset support liability suppression program, challenge the Fed in maintaining it, and uh, therefore induce the Fed to want to uh, support it. But it's also clearly a matter of public fiscal policy. So lastly, I'd like to talk about the investment implications of my views on the monetary and fiscal landscape. And fortunately or unfortunately, probably unfortunately, one has to be extremely cautious in their conclusions. A lot is indeterminative in terms of both the shorter and longer term uh, individual investment choices. In the spring, you know, I suggested that on the one hand, we have the worst economy ever and sectors of it that will take a very long time to recover. And on the other hand, we have unprecedented amount of fiscal stimulus, the two of them, you know, overlapping and things like the PPP program, but easily $2 trillion of stimulus. And I thought, you know, like, hold a gun to my head, bet on the stimulus prevailing. And that turned out to be right, though sort of my specific choices weren't and haven't been that good. Never in a million years would I have expected Tesla to experience the run it has. And things like uh, Zoom, which would not be a beneficiary, certainly not a direct beneficiary of the stimulus, stock price going parabolic. But you know, even something like an Airbnb, in my view, would be on the wrong side of where money directly would go, and, and yet that's doing well. In short, we are in the most speculative, frothy market I believe I've ever seen. And the thing that matters most in this environment and you know, in other speculative environments is being a household name, a certain panache, a certain kind of alignment with the zeitgeist of the time. Looking out a little further and uh, perhaps a little more broadly, I feel confident that you know something like the broad commercial real estate values will not crash, that commercial real estate, generally speaking, uh, will have access to capital and will have policy and Fed support. At least in nominal terms, I think that you can be fairly confident that 10 or 20 years from now, the broad swath of commercial real estate will have higher nominal prices than it does today. But does that mean that one should mezzanine debt in a group of hotels? Very, very tricky because, in fact, junior parts of capital structure are subject to both the broad form that incoming money takes and the specifics of their situation. You know, there'll be situations where equity holders are able to wipe out MES holders and situations that are the reverse. One of the flaws of the classic economic model is within 
classic economics, more or less everybody is a price taker. The market determines a price and everybody has to decide whether to buy or sell at that price. In point of fact, a huge, huge swath of transactions in the economy is subject to negotiation. The negotiating power and negotiating skill matter a great deal. So I think one has to be cautious. I do think well-capitalized, established players apt to have access to more capital in the future are well positioned to negotiate good deals. So you want to be on their side. It's one of the things I think about a lot. I don't want to take financial risk, which is to say, as opposed to operating economic risk, I don't want to have an investment wiped out before seeing it all the way through because somebody else has that negotiating position. So whether directly or through agents, it's very, very important to have access to capital sufficient to ride any investment through and sufficient to put oneself in a reasonable negotiating position. So once again, I don't think one can't say, well, we should buy the things that the Fed is going to throw money at or uh, fiscal policy is going to throw money at, in part because policymakers would say they're data-driven. I think it's more accurate to say that they're reactive and federal government money, at least to a large degree, is going to flow into areas that are suffering, into places where things are going wrong. And very generally speaking, it's better to be invested in things that are going right than in things that are going wrong. But that said, if one can be in a position where the path will not wipe them out, where one has a chance of holding something through, you know, I think it's a good bet to bet against collapse. You know, the one thing that I do believe the level of skew in option markets is market mispricing. When I came into the investment world way back when, option prices generally showed kurtosis. Generally speaking, out-of-the-money call options had a higher implied volatility than out-of-the-money put options. The thought being companies were subject. You could have takeovers at big premiums, but couldn't violate the zero bound on a stocks. You know, stocks had sort of infinite upside, but the downside being clearly established at zero. Since sometime, basically since 87, that's been reversed and it's been permanent. I do think that is wrong. Currently working on collecting some data that supports that view, but that would be if I had to come up with one takeaway that maybe leads to actionable strategy, it would be that skew is too high and might even go away over the next 10 years. I'm always asked for individual stock recommendations, even though my record in that realm is not all that good. And generally, I refuse, given that the first rule of predicting is if one makes predictions, make a lot of them, so some of them have to be right. The other rule is if you give a price, don't give a time, and if you give a time, don't give a price. So I do try and refrain from recommending individual stocks. It's just way too easy to be embarrassed, but I am going to break that rule because I did give this to somebody privately as one of my favorite holdings. I like the Blackstone Mortgage Trust, BXMT, and I'll explain a little bit in terms of where they fit 
in the landscape that I've given. Stock trades around 28, which is pretty close to book value, which I'm pretty confident is now understated that their book value is actually somewhat more. It yields in the vicinity of 9%. It is structured as a read. Apart from the reasonable valuation relative to book value, the very strong yield. Blackstone and this entity, in my view, are extremely likely to have access to capital at good terms. They have and are likely to continue to have first access and prime access to extremely good deal flow. And lastly, in part because of that, certainly a contributing factor, I believe they negotiate good deals for their entity. So they are somewhat levered and tied to the commercial real estate market. But again, you know, as I indicated before, I don't see a collapse in commercial real estate. I think, in fact, over the extended period, uh, they'll benefit from volatility in commercial real estate valuations because of their capital base, because of their access to capital, because of their sort of deal flow and because of their negotiating skills. So I think it's safe. I think, you know, shortly when the very, very speculative froth of the market comes off, there's likely to be a move into uh, areas that offer income and financial strength. So that's it. Please don't hold me to it. If the stock ticks down, I you know hope to be around in 20 years and then uh, you can come back to me and I'll either tell you that I put the sell recommendation in you know 12 years hence, so you missed the last eight years or I'll stand by the recommendation but I'm not giving a price and I'm not giving a time either leaving all of that open. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Ask Andy. Andy will be taking a two-week holiday break and will return January 8th. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.